welcome to another ARCS chat. My name is Robin Bauer-Kogo. I am the Association Manager for ARCS. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand this over to John Robinette and we will see you all soon. Thanks, go ahead, John. Hey, welcome back everybody. Uh, we took uh, November off as you may have noticed due to all of the live content from the ARCS virtual conference. Uh, but we're back uh, with uh, Verve and Swagger. Uh, joining me today to co-host this is Amanda Robinson. And uh, she is from Florida. And uh, we have a huge panel uh, to discuss our shipping situation for all of our art and artifact collections. Um, basically, this is a part two of the topic that we initially introduced last April of 2020, right as the pandemic went into full swing. Um, and at that time, there was still a huge amount of uncertainty. I mean, in reality, there still is a lot of uncertainty, but we have learned to deal with it. So we're going to discuss all of the actions that we took place, that we put into place, and the new procedures that we put into place in order to deal with working and shipping during the pandemic. And we're gonna talk about all of the new standards that, that, um, that we've created in order to make our jobs happen. Um, since we're all very connected, many of these procedures have become standardized throughout the world. And uh, we want to look at each region in order to better understand uh, how we have all adapted and what's going to stay the same and what's going to po possibly change in the future and if it's going to change by geography as well. We'll also try and anticipate what's coming up next. Uh, so to discuss all of these topics, uh, I want to introduce our amazing panel today. Uh, today uh, joining us is Jason Losh from Deedle, the Director of Business Development. Meg Colbert, uh, the Managing Director of BoxArt, Carlos Cordoba, the President of Cordoba Plaza in Mexico, Monica Bassan, the General Manager of Inli in Peru, Ana Tabuenca, Director of Fine Arts at, the, at SIT in Spain, Bob Simon, the Director of TCI here in the US, Tina Sullivan, the Vice President of the Western Region of Masterpiece, Ben Adams, the general manager of Constantine in the UK. Shige Moriyama, the general manager of, um, the manager of Yamato Logistics. Derek Jones, executive director of Atelier in the United States. George Lacovara, director of Gander and White Los Angeles. Chuck Agro, director of special projects at Crozier and uh, Antonio Adari, the managing director of Arteria in Italy. So let's begin today with a, a discussion with a topic that we ended with largely in our discussion in April, which was how do we protect our employees? And I, I can think of no better place to start than with the Art Services Workers Safety Coalition. Now, Meg and, uh, and Derek were the founders of that organization. Can you tell us um, how you went about your process and also what uh, what's come out of the coalition of uh, of of, um, of shippers that uh, that you put together? Yeah, um, I think uh, Meg. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in real quick, and then you can take over. Uh, but more like a macro level, 
Uh, I think Sarah Smith said it really well yesterday was that um, we were establishing trust within the industry um, and how to work. Uh, at that point, we were filling a void where there wasn't clear rules on how we could operate, what we could do at that <laughs> point to um, you know, actually get back to work um, and do it in a safe way. I think um, you know what it's evolved into um, is more communication and more openness and more trust between uh, different vendors and museums. And I think that that's been a really amazing opportunity here that we've had. Um, and I guess, you know, Meg really runs, Meg and Sarah really run the nuts and bolts of everything. So I'll let Meg mention all that. Thanks, Derek. Yeah, I mean, I think just to kind of jump on what Eric said is we started off kind of operating in a vacuum where there wasn't really anything to look to for guidance. And obviously we still wanted to continue working in some capacity when the shutdown was over. Um, but for us, it was really important to establish safety standards, not just as an industry, but specifically for our workers who would bear the brunt of sort of exposure in these situations. So I think from an organizational perspective, what we did was we formed meetings, Zoom meetings, where we tried to source consensus. And we did that through surveys um, and mailings and then, you know, group meetings where we tried to talk through some particular uh, issues. And there was a lot of collaboration. A lot of people worked on the documents that became the documents that you can reference on the website. Um, so I think it was a lot of people working together, which was also, I think, a really valuable experience from my perspective. And uh, I think just to see as an industry competitors coming together, for example, to agree on safety standards and work together to define what those would be and come to agreements that um, would work both from a vendor perspective, but also um, in order to engage with institutional clients. Um, where there could be a kind of common ground that we could come to to protect our workers. And I know that um, Derek would probably agree with this because um, we were talking about this yesterday, but I think that it helped provide a, a sense of trust, as he was saying, not just industry-wide, but even internally in our own businesses. I know from my perspective, our workers really appreciated knowing that they had these protections that were being taken seriously by everybody who was involved in projects that they were working on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what um, would you what what are sort of the enduring factors that might be um, uh, coming out of this uh, this coalition and, and the standards you set? I think, um, you know, honestly, a lot of the policies that everybody see has as an attachment to their, you know, um, invoices or whatever it might be. Right. Seem to be coming circulated from what the industry was able to put together together um, and then adapt them individually to each company. So I think it's a pretty standardized uh, methods for safety, which was really the main goal at that point. Um, Meg mentioned that the analytics on our website were way up over the last two weeks because of the Omicron. So it's like, it's something that I think is continually needing to be updated. And I think we had a little lull there where everybody's getting a little comfy. Um, and then as soon as things get a little, start sweating it, um, it's going to become tip of tongue again and uh, something that we'll need to really start uh, re-engaging. Now, um, for those of you outside of the United States, uh, did you come up with your own set of safety standards? Uh, did you work 
with Art Services Workers Safety Coalition? Uh, how did you go about creating this uh, trust and safety uh, amongst yourselves? Let's start with uh, with Europe. Ben, do you want to talk about Europe and the UK? Ben and Anna and Antonio? Yeah, I mean, there was... I mean, to be honest with you, we followed a lot of the the government guidance that was laid down uh, that for our government, at least, was relatively uh, straightforward and pragmatic, uh, which made a change. Um, and we also had good, great interaction with the uh, UK Registrars Group um, and Arts Council England. So we were able to, it's very much in the sense of, again, in the spirit of collaboration uh, between uh, the shippers and uh the museum clients as well, and 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 indeed, a lot of the regular private clients as well. Um, the sharing of information um, and uh, communication was quite key, um, and that was that was adopted very early on. Um, and I think it was good. Everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, so yeah, following following the guidance that was laid down, it was relatively commonsensical. But it was it was good that we did that very early on. Did you say work with other shippers, say, you know, whether it's uh, through Artem or Isafat, did you group together like that? Yeah, there was definitely a, there, yeah, there was definitely a sharing of information, um, both via Artem, but also via the UKRG, because we have a, a, a corporate member's side uh, of, of that group. And, uh, you know, again, we were drawn together by the, by the chair uh, of the UKRG and the committee very early on uh, to sort of lay down um, everyone putting in ideas and putting forward uh, what they felt were key sort of parameters uh, at that time. And it's, and it's, and it's let, it's led on from there. Um, and I think a lot of the work that we did early on is still being adhered to today, which is, um, which, you know, uh, speaks volumes. Yep. Anna, Antonio, do you have anything else to add? We we did um, a real mix between everything we we found through through the different um, participants in in different forums and also or or domestic or national uh, bodies uh, they immediately started to request because most of the museums. In, in Spain are depending from from the state, so if they dictate certain rules, we we need to follow them. So we we made um, a global um, document and standard, and tried to simplify a little bit because it was like too too heavy to to read all along to too long to detail sometimes not so useful so we we try to to do like a you know quick quick um what can i say you know quick lines to to follow resume mm -hmm. and then we implemented with um very small meetings but many, many meetings with all our teams in the different I mean, drivers, packers, people in the office. And then this, I think, was the most effective 
to to continue bim, 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 uh, repeating and repeating because it was changing along the during during the pandemic. So yep. now the people they are trained, they are used to to follow the rules. I think is is the best the training uh, schedule. Monica and uh, Carlos, oh, Antonio, did you have something to add? No, Sorry. Just quickly, because uh, already Anna and Ben said most of what we have done. Uh, we had, uh, at the beginning, we had an exchange of information with the uh, Workers Safety Coalition, but then we had, we had to follow our own uh, given by the government. Also because there were been always different level of spreading of the virus. Sometimes was worse here, so stricter uh, rules, etc. Up to the last one, I don't know what happened in, in other countries, but since the beginning of November in Italy, we have something that is called uh, Green Pass. Uh, that means that you can go to work in the office or in warehouse or any facility only if you have been vaccinated or uh, if you can give a test given in the last 24, 48 hours. So if you don't want to do that, you cannot go to work and you are not paid. And uh, and that helped quite a lot. Um, some people that were not uh, convinced to do the vaccine to do it, and uh, but th that was quite a, um, a very strict and difficult sometimes uh, discussion within the within the companies with the with the workers. Did Especially you lose a lot? Of, yeah. Did you lose a lot of workers because of this? Uh, Actually, only one, uh, only one, and the, the other two are doing the, the the other two that are not vaccinated. So we have only three workers on about one hundred people, um, and the other two are doing the test every other day. So yeah, they, they keep come working, but uh, doing the test. Right. Uh, I'm going to talk to Monica and Carlos a little bit about the context in Latin America because. I think that uh, it will be less familiar to most people listening. Um, did uh, did you adopt similar uh, safety protocols? It seems that you know the the waves of the virus kind of went from uh, to Europe and then to the United States, but uh, and then maybe to uh, to Latin America a little bit later. Um, can you tell us about uh, how how things happened uh, in your countries, Monica? Ladies Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Carlos. Uh, yes, uh, the virus arrived at uh, South America a little uh, late than in the other con in the other continents. So when we had the cases uh, and uh, the pandemic here, uh, what the government did really was to uh, take uh, the safety protocols used in other continents and adapt them. To, to our reality, no? So uh, for us, it was uh, not really difficult to follow re the, the government requirements, but made them, at the beginning, uh, stricter uh, ones uh, to guarantee 100% of, of safety for, uh, for our workers and also for the, the people we were, uh, we had to be in contact with, no? And uh, it worked really good. Uh, first, first of all, we had to, uh, although the offices uh, continue, uh, are still uh, making work of the, uh, home office, uh, 
we uh, all the operation department is working since April uh, last uh, 2020, no, and with uh, very strict protocols, as as Anna mentioned, no, a lot of chats, uh, direct chats with all 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 the staff, uh, making uh, consciousness about uh, the. Uh, that that this it was really a problem, a health problem that Peru was all during all the process having a, a, very, a lot of difficulties uh, trying to control the pandemic, and that we, as part of our community, we we had to be uh, the ones that uh, guide. Uh, in all, in all, in all, not only in work, but also in our, in our, as part of our families, uh, to keep us a lot in, in care, no. And and this worked really, really very well. Uh, here, everyone is really trained, and when the vaccination process started, everyone wanted to get vaccinated. Thankfully. <laughs> And all of our staff is completely fully vaccinated, and uh, this has been very important for us because we we really didn't have uh, complicated cases. Uh, we always felt that we were protecting not only our staff but also uh, museum staff and and all of our uh, all the places where we had to work in. You no. Know? Uh, and for us, it has been very easy now because uh, the new regulation is that since uh, December 15, all all the people above 45 must be must have full full vaccination uh, to enter to public places to travel by bus or by plane uh, nationally. So so. Actually, we are very, uh, I don't know if it can be the word, but grateful <clears throat> that we have contributed really uh, to, to keep things doing well in the cultural sector in Peru, no? Carlos? Well, yes, in our country, because we are very close to the US, so we, we have almost the same rules. And uh, also uh, the museums, most of them, like in Spain, uh, belong to the government. So the rules are the same. So what we did is we we uh, we follow both you know rules from here and there, and we are, and we invent our own rules for the company. For example, uh, we uh, now we are having a lot of uh, 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 home office from the people from uh, from the offices. And when if you don't use uh, drivers this uh, day, we we keep it at home. So we we call the crew or the staff only when we need it. So in uh, in this case, we have only a very small crew always. And fortunately, the, all the uh, the staff uh, uh, apply the vaccines both. And uh, because you know by law we cannot uh, we cannot. Uh, stop somebody you don't want it. We, we need to have all the people, even if they don't want to vaccine. So we have all, now we all have vaccines and, and you know, it's, uh, we are having a, a nice, we didn't have too much uh, uh, people with COVID last year, maybe only three. So and we are 100, so it's it's okay. And uh, we, are, we, are, we are, we survive. 
We spent a lot of uh, time doing this, in, including myself, and uh, we are going to make it. We all we are going to make it for the future. We now we have a new one, so we don't know when when uh, when when it's finished. This, but but we you know we still using the masks on the offices. Uh, we uh, you know the, the washing the hands every every very often. You know that very simple rules. So we keep it simple, like like SIT, and it's working. So I'm I'm very happy that. Uh, we're still there. We haven't uh, 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 had any 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 uh, passes away or nothing. So we are there. Yes. Thank you so much. I um, I want to encourage everyone who's listening right now to uh, jump in the chat and send us your questions. Um, Amanda, is there anything uh, happening in the chat that we should know about? Nothing. Nothing yet. Just a lot of greetings and happy holiday wishes. Well, I guess I better ask harder questions then. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, what's happening here. The um, I I, it, I take it that most people have uh, started working from home and uh, creating remote work. Um, I'm going to start with uh, with Tina and Jason. And can you tell me about how uh, how you've adapted to that and what it actually means? And if you think you're going to continue to work uh, remotely, and then I'm going to talk with uh, with Chuck about actually working on site during all of this stuff. So um, let's get both perspectives. So yeah, Tina and Jason, let's let's talk about remote work. Uh, well, I guess I can start. Um, yeah, we've been uh, remote since March of 2020. Um, we masterpieces decided as of January, we're going to have our staff go back about three days a week and we're going to kind of see how that goes. But I think that the hybrid work has actually benefited us in some ways. I mean, I think it's nice to be back in the office because there's a little bit more collaboration face to face, but, uh, there's, there's a lot of nice things. I know that people always talk about that work life balance and it's, in some ways, working from home has uh, hindered that because I feel like every time I, you know, I, I walk by my office, which is in my house, I'm like, I better just check a couple more emails. Um, but it does allow me to cook dinner at night. <laughs> um, kind of at three o'clock, I'll prep, prep for dinner. Um, but no, I think I think that ultimately we probably will be back in the office. Um, every state's a little bit different in terms of, you know, in LA, we still have to wear masks in the office regardless of uh, vaccination status, um, which, which you know, some people, you know, are hesitant uh, to sit all day in a mask. So that's kind of um, something we're hoping will will be done with soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're doing. We're just getting ready to start start going back. I think we're in a similar situation. Go ahead, Tina. No, no. I think we're in a similar situation where our offices are are almost all remote. In our satellite offices, a lot of the people are going into the office because they're in small groups, so they can work inside of there. Um, our jobs are so complex that sitting next to somebody to be able to ask a question is so relevant and important that, that when you're working remotely all the time, it's hard to be able to just riff next to the person that it's sitting right there and get those answers that you need. So I think it's really important that we are able to sit in those offices and have those conversations and sort of learn and grow together. Um, that being said, we don't have any plans right now for immediate uh, bringing everybody back into the offices, but talking about like these safety protocols and everything too, I think 
when when we're seeing these actually put into place, one of the I'm down in Miami, Basel right now. We're still here. It's our last day of loadouts, but we have over 80 techs on site right now just for Deedle at the fair. So looking at those safety protocols and how they're actually implementing them in the real world with everybody in there in this building, I think you start to see what actually works and what doesn't work and to take those and sort of bring those into small job sites, but in the large ones. So like for Miami Basel, what they're doing is they made you go provide your COVID check or get a, get a, a test immediately. You get a wristband that allows you to then go into the fair Masks are worn on site every day, and then there's rapid COVID testing every single day if you want it or you determine that you need it. So I think building those safety protocols with the institutions that are actually providing these services like Basel are, are really important moving forward. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you for that. I think that um, there's going to be, there's a lot of, uh, since you mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the safety protocols so there was someone just asked in the chat if uh if we are going to have to implement new or tweak our safety protocols because of the omicron variant is that something that you think you're going to have to do or is it we have our protocols and and we're just going to stick to them is it more of the latter i would say I, so yeah I, I think the latter too yeah yeah so, uh, Chuck, um, I know uh, with Crozier, you've been doing on-site uh, projects. Your 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 um, your job is to do all the the weird, crazy jobs that uh, that uh, require a lot of scale, and you've been doing that throughout the pandemic. Um, how have you navigated these waters with uh, with all of the on-site projects? I'm still alive, so that's positive. Um, you know, we we have to follow CDC guidelines and. We follow um, a number of the government protocols because a lot of our, a lot of my projects are in either government or museum institutions. So, identifying our staff in the database um, as for who has been and who has not been vaccinated is important since many of our clients require that our employees be vaccinated. Um, you know, at the beginning, we were doing the same thing as everybody else, buying crazy amounts of PPE, masks. I got my mask right here. I have to wear it on site. Um, I tend to be, right now, I'm away from the masses, so it's a little bit easier. But my projects never shut down, which what you're alluding to, because they were essential service projects. Um, and, you know, there is some, there's restrictions here. I'm in D.C. at a Smithsonian building. Um, most of the PPE was already in place. Some of it was added. There's some distancing. There were issues with some staff that did not want to and the problem really isn't being on site. We know the clients are safe. We know we're safe. But your staff, you know, they may need to travel on the subway. They need to, they have to figure out a way to commute. And it became, that became more problematic than anything else. Um, probably the more, most difficult project that I ran was um, in Oklahoma, where we were relocating the entire museum. And I had to go through, uh, as probably everybody knows here, that Right now, if you're sending a courier anywhere, they're going to have to, you have to add in quarantine time. And I was trying to consider what would happen in an enclosed environment if you send somebody to a project and they tested positive, and then I had to quarantine the entire staff or the entire museum. And in some parts, since, you know, I, I know from our company running a shuttle that every state, I think we all know this, has different regulations. 
one of the regulations in Oklahoma was that school children didn't need to wear masks to school once they went back to school. So a number of people that had children on the site were having children that had COVID, even though they weren't infected. And then we had to test everybody and they had to leave the site. So we created pods. I hired most of the staff locally. Um, and we discussed this before. I, had to, I hired them locally and I hired replacements for them locally so that we had a contingency if people weren't able to come on site. So the project didn't have to slow down. And yeah, it, it was a little white knuckle, but the project did come in on time and on budget. And we did have to swap out bodies periodically for different reasons, all due to COVID, different COVID restrictions. Um, here and the, and the government projects, they're so shut down and away from the public, um, there hasn't really been an issue. And the museums, even though you're probably in a section of the museum doing a relocation or an installation, generally there's still going to be some people in the public there and there are more office workers there that may not have to follow the same regulations and more surfaces to touch. Um, here we're always wearing masks, we're always wearing gloves. Um, we're not being tested regularly. We're not doing spot checks on COVID, but everyone is following CDC guidelines. And, you know, we do, you know, there was a period where temperatures were being taken every day. I know we did that in Oklahoma. Um, I, I have to do that for my son going to school in New York State. I have to take his temperature and report it every day and then sign an affidavit. And, uh, you know, it's almost the same thing with the theaters in New York. I, I have to go to a theater, same thing. They check your temperature, you have to show your cards. So it's, it's kind of been the same thing. It's a little complicated. Each institution handles it a little differently. But, you know, I've gone into the Met. They, they check my temperature. I get a wristband. I have to show my card. Um, and I have to wear my mask the entire time I'm in there. We do the same thing here. And, you know, so far, no real issues. I don't see it changing unless CDC changes the regulations. It's not going to change with Omicron. Um, it's really... The validation, not the validation, but the database lists of which of our employees has been vaccinated. And that really has become an, um, a client requirement. They're requiring that we've had it. We had it in place already. But once it became a government initiative, it became a museum initiative. And once it became a museum initiative, it became our initiative. So we supplied that. Um, yep. Uh, Antonio, you had a comment? Uh, yeah, it's more uh, kind of... Um thinking that uh, especially in this right um, period uh, for the northern hemisphere where there is a lot of uh, uh, traditional flu not covid uh, it's really important you know that we uh, all of us we take uh, the responsibility uh, to um, to take decisions sometimes not easy if you have to change a team if you have to postpone uh, an appointment or something you have to do or a transport but uh, at least uh, as soon as we have someone that can be uh, uh, in, in, a, in a dangerous situation to spread the, the virus uh, we decide immediately to keep it at home and, and change it this is a cost for a company but I think this is something we have uh, to do it because there are no many uh, specific ways to to detect if there is a COVID, even the temperature is not um, really enough because sometimes there are people that are spreading without even having temperature. So 
any little sign and this period in winter here is quite difficult because we have a lot of people with flu likely uh, at the moment uh, is only flu for everybody but we always send them to make immediate uh, in test and uh, the when the uh, the real test and, and be sure that they are not um, uh, affected by the virus so it's something i think that as manager of a company we have to do it to protect all of us and the museums where we work and, and all the stuff okay uh, it looks like we have a few questions. Uh, Amanda, do you want to uh, tell us uh, what, what our questions are coming in? I'm happy to. We had one come through the chat that had asked that they had heard there are shortages of drivers for fine art trucks. Is that true worldwide? Is there a sense that that might become a long-term concern? I'm, I'm going to uh, ask uh, Bob specifically, and I know George, I, I spoke to, uh, specifically with a uh, about this question. This is where I was going next. Uh, do you guys want to comment on, on that? Uh, I, I, I'm happy to start. Uh, yeah, we, um, we are having and facing an issue with hiring drivers now and other art handlers and qualified technicians. Um, I even think that that, uh, that issue is extending to the project managers and, and office positions as well. Um, a lot of, the, I mean, much of that could be related to the pandemic and uh, protections that were put in place for uh, for load workers and laid off workers. But also, it's also the product of a very hot labor market. I mean, our industry has really taken off since the pandemic has, um, you know, settled down or we've, we've learned how to deal with it better. And I, I just, I think that, you know, this is basically, you know, economics 101. You know, the things are really, you know, heated now and it's hard to get labor. It's, a, it's definitely an employee's marketplace now, not an employer's. And do I think it's going to be long term? I think it will wax and wane with, uh, with the fate of the pandemic, ongoing and ongoing dealings with that and also with the economy. I think that it, it will remain long term. I think one of the issues is that as drivers and art handlers find that they can do different things and make a living, they choose not to do, to, do, to be on a truck for two weeks at a time. There are a lot of vendors in this country, in the US, that have trucks sitting because they don't have drivers. And it creates a situation where clients have to work further in advance and prices are gonna get squeezed higher because eventually you're gonna to have to pay the drivers more. And I, I, I don't think, as I said before, I don't think that it's going to get better. I think that there are fewer, at least on the driver's side, there are fewer people that want to be in that lifestyle of driving a truck. I mean, if you think about it, going cross country in the U.S., it could be a two-week run. And that means people are away from their house or their family or their kids for two weeks. And a lot of people are finding that they have other options. And I don't think they're going back. Um, we had one company whose drivers basically won't go up to Wyoming and North Dakota. It's not a question of money. It's a question of they just don't want to go. And I don't think that's getting better. And I think that we all have to learn how to deal with it. We all have to plan ahead further than we're used to planning. I found it on the remote projects because I mean, I'm familiar with the major markets. We're all in major markets and a lot of art handlers, project managers and drivers have left those markets for, for because of COVID, nothing else. Um, and 
I've been doing projects in the middle of the country, and a lot of them move there. So I was pleasantly surprised. In Oklahoma, I had people who worked in museums or for major service companies from, uh, just, you know, from LACMA, from the Jewish Museum, people from Chicago, and they were all in Oklahoma. Part of it was those smaller towns also offered those people money to move there in the middle of COVID. So a lot of them took that. And I was able to actually put together you know, really good crews outside of New York. Now, inside New York's a whole other story. Yeah. Shige, is this a problem in, in Japan as well or and in other parts of Asia? Um, I think it really did. It's different uh, between uh, Japan and other Asian countries because uh, uh, I, I can only say about Japan. And Japan is a, is now really an aging society. So uh, before the pandemic, uh, shortages of handlers or uh, uh, drivers are uh, already a big issue for us. So and uh, it still continues. But I don't think it get wor- it got worse after the pandemic. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know um, uh, the workers. I think it's. It's all same uh, worldwide, but uh, transport workers is uh, treated as essential workers, like the hospital guys. So we don't, even there is a lockdown, we could we could uh, work, and uh, 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 so uh, at the moment, uh, I think in the in the pandemic, uh, there are many uh, uh, other uh, industry who is. Uh, uh, in a risk like a traveling or airline, uh, restaurants, uh, those. Uh, uh, so there are many people who got uh, lost uh, uh, work. So uh, we we we, uh, we rather worry after the pandemic for the shortages and uh, uh, shortages for, of handlers and uh, and drivers, actually. So Meg, you have a, uh, a that's comment? a decision. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add into the conversation just to say that I think we've, you know, we've seen a lot of difficulty filling positions, both in transport and for handlers and carpenters. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, people having other options, but just also very different expectations about what their jobs are going to look like, at least in New York City. And I think that it's part of a larger issue of what employees want from a work, their work life and how uh, companies can sort of evolve to change to meet those needs, which is not something that happens overnight. And I think um, is challenging from a structural perspective to try to meet those needs, fill positions and keep things running like um, the way that the industry expects things to run. And maybe part of the answer is that, you know, some of the expectations of the turnarounds um, and the pace that we are used to working at, maybe that needs to be evaluated a little bit in terms of the workers who are increasingly hard to find, especially in, you know, major city markets. Um, Tina, do you want to comment and, uh, or sorry, Anna first and then Tina, or sorry, go ahead, Tina. Uh, No, I was just, I was just actually going to make some of those same points because I think, you know, a lot of us have lost 
you know, a talented work pool because, you know, people started working from home and then they realized, well, I don't need to pay these, you know, high rents or, or maybe I'm going to sell my house in the city. I'm going to move out to somewhere where it's, you know, it's a little, I can afford something nicer and it's better for my kids. And I think uh, finding ways maybe now that we all are used to working remotely to maybe attract those people again, like Chuck said, there's like people in the middle of the country that he's, he, you know, he's finding great talented work. So maybe we have to think outside of the box in terms of maybe everybody doesn't have to be in the office. Maybe we can, you know, uh, you know, pay someone Kansas to, 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 to help in LA or, or in New York. And I know that, that that's not going to fit all purposes, but I think there's maybe a change in, in pers uh, perspective as, as to what our office life looks like. Anna. Mm, yes, well, my point is it's very um, in my in my experience it's very clear that uh, economically um, these drivers are um, in a very high risk and they they cannot they cannot because you know the the cost for fuel uh, has changed dramatically and most of them. Um, not maybe the ones that are working for us uh, for fine arts, which are um, must um, more sorry more um, cared by by the companies, but most of the drivers along Europe they they work for for themselves. They are independent, and they are contracted by by work by 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 travel. So uh, it makes uh, really difficult for them to to make to make a trip like they used to do, because uh, you know the fuel um, has changed in in every country. So they they cannot uh, ride with the similar rates. And in on the other side, clients. Um, has happened to us uh, every day. They want a fixed, uh, fixed uh, budget, fixed uh, price, and, and uh, it's really no way, no way to to keep the figures as they used to be. Um, we we need uh, more flexibility because at the end, when you contract with, and this is another issue, but. The air, air freights and on all this is changing day by day. So no longer 15 days, uh, six months or three months uh, estimate. Forget about it. No, no, no more. I think this is the main um, consequence of the of the pandemia in terms of the economy. Yep. We are. In the, in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jason, and then uh, we'll ask Meg. I just wanted to know, uh, just building on Bob and, and Anna's too, I think it's important to note this isn't specific to just our industry. This is across the board in all areas of a strained supply chain. We're dealing with this like truckers were already difficult to find before the pandemic. And now we're in a situation where underpaid and overworked employees don't want to do those things anymore. So if you're looking at things like shipping for ocean and trying to get 
get containers out of those ports. It's just not going to happen the way that it used to. So it's going to take a, a fundamental rethinking of how we do business in some of these areas and what's possible and what isn't possible. Uh, it's just, it's incredibly complicated. Even, even the timelines for, for dropping off freight at the airport to, to what Anna was saying too, like the, the cost of trucking to the airport now is exponentially higher, exponentially higher than what it was previously, because we don't know how long our drivers are going to be sitting there waiting to drop off freight. It's just, it's intense all the way around. Yeah. Meg. Yeah. I was just going to add in, I think too, like there's a real tension between those workers, not tension between the workers themselves, but tension um, between the expectations of workers who have to work on site and those that can work remotely. I feel like for a lot of workers that can work remotely, there's been a lot of really positive changes in our business. Um, we at BoxArt, we found that we developed new ways to communicate with each other and chart projects um, to track, uh, track costs and, and things like that, that were really useful and beneficial and were a true evolution. And unfortunately, though, for people who work, whose jobs are dependent on them being on site, they don't get to see those kind of new flexibilities and benefits and are, I think, often end up feeling kind of um, left out of a larger conversation about burnout and, um, you know, work-life balance that for people who started working remotely, there's a really good vocabulary that's been um, put out into the world that everybody's talking about. And it's just a kind of interesting thing to think about as a business. How do you um, answer those needs of these two very different groups of employees? Are you finding, and this is a question for everybody, are you finding that you have to uh, pay higher wages in order to attract people? And does that increase the cost for the client as well? I think that people do expect more now. I think that when you see people seeking positions that, you know, in 2018 might've offered less. Um, now there's just a general consensus among those job seekers that they want more and that their labor is worth something. And I think that's valuable in itself that um, the value of that labor has gone up because it is valuable. These are skilled people who provide great services. Yeah. Derek. And then uh, after Derek, we'll uh, have Antonio. I think everybody was shaking their heads. Yes, that the cost of labor has gone up. Yeah, so exactly. uh, that that answered it. I would. Uh, I was going to say that. Well, we did. We just did a flat rate increase for everybody across the board. Um, and then obviously everybody's the numbers have been jumping up when you see the ads that people are hiring for. Um, but I think it's also the cost of everything is more expensive, right? So outside of this, you know, milk's more expensive all of a sudden. So you know, I think to Meg's point of having staff that are on the road. One of the reasons we wanted to get all our staff back in the office was not out because they couldn't work remotely. It was out of solidarity for everybody that's on the road. Right. So it was kind of uh, trying to get a, a, in, you know, we have, we're a three day a week schedule basically in the office, but I think that it is one of those things where as a community, we're asking a lot of the people that are on the road um, and often they're the lowest paid. So, you know, that needs to kind of be, equaled um, and get to a better spot for the industry as a whole. Antonio? Uh, yeah, uh, initially we have a bit of a different situation. We do not feel problems with the shortage of um, manpower in terms of our handling or transport for fine art transport. 
It's true for other transport for freight, general freight, yes, I know, we know that there, there is, but not in fine art. And uh, what, what I feel more is that uh, you know, we do have higher costs for freight and, and other stuff, but not for, for, uh, for the labor. But what I feel now that is important to understand uh, that we, most of our normal clients, they have lot, much lot reduced budgets, museums, private organizers. And uh, uh, so the, the only way we can all work together to help uh, this situation is uh, to increase uh, project planning. Uh, this is very, very important. This is not happening at the moment. We still have last minute uh, projects uh, that are not, is not helping you know, to, to optimize costs. And, uh, and this is also in terms of sustainability, you know, uh, everything can be done uh, better and, uh, and also optimizing resources, but uh, we have all to work in the same direction. I mean, as an agent, we cannot do it on our own. I mean, if we have to do it something and, and uh, we are requested to do a transport uh, or a project tomorrow, we try to do it tomorrow, then, then we have to use what, what, what is needed to do it tomorrow. But if we can plan uh, one week or one month, depends on how big is the project in advance, for sure, we can find a better solution. Um, th that is, there, are, there are ways you know, to keep costs uh, under control. But it is not something you do at the last minute. This is for sure. And what I feel now that to help all this situation, we should really be able organizer, exhibition organizers, museum and agents, you know, to work well in advance. And uh, uh, yeah, that is the only very important situation that I don't see at the moment here in Italy. Yeah. And then George. I just wanted to add that I'm, I'm sure that we're not alone in this, but I know a lot of companies now in this current labor market are offering uh, recruitment bonuses and signing bonuses. So we're not alone in that too. So that, of course, also adds to our additional costs. Are you? I was going to add that. that? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Chuck, go ahead. That's right. I was going to add that. I mean, one of the things we're missing by having fewer people because we do have to distance on site. Um, you know, our main concern has always been the employees. I mean, from the very beginning, what we did was we have a risk assessment form. And if they feel that something's at risk, um, they have the option of identifying at risk and, and staying away from that site. And so there is a certain distancing. But our industry, the art handlers, the packers, they depend on tribal knowledge. It's more of an apprenticeship than an actual training. And we'd have to spend more time on actual training, internships, as opposed to apprenticeships the way it used to be, um, to get art handlers up to the same speed that we used to. In the old days when I started, you know, it's just they just stuck you with like a team of senior art handlers and you learned underneath them. And that's become less prevalent because of because of distancing and the lack of numbers and also people leaving the industry. So, yes, that tribal knowledge seems to be disappearing and that training has become an additional cost. Amanda, is there uh, other questions? We're going to come to to couriers at some point here. Uh, I'm going to, and, and as well as sustainability. But uh, I want to um, see if there's anything going on in the chat other than to respond to what we've just been discussing. Well, there's been actually a few like procedural questions that people are asking in the chat. If you want to go ahead and address some of those. Um, okay, is, is it stuff that we've already covered? 
No, okay. no. Um, so some of some of these questions are like, what are the latest protocols for segregating and cleaning crates and materials and tools? Um, and questions about whether or not workers are still working in pod, in pods, in pod structures. And I'm, I'm assuming what they mean by that is like drivers that are typically always driving together and not necessarily switching out employees as they had previously. Is that still the case for most people? Yeah. Is it has any protocol changed with regards to cleaning? I don't I don't think people are really cleaning crates anymore. Is that correct? Yeah. Not in Mexico, no. No. Not anymore. No. Yeah. Um, I want to move the conversation over to sustainability, uh, just because that has um, it, it touches so many other topics as such as couriers, for example. Um, but I'm going to start with Ben because, uh, Constantine opened a new environmentally friendly, uh, if we can call it that, uh, facility, uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And, um, can you, I mean, this must've been something you were planning for a while in advance, but can you tell us a little bit about, um, how you did it and why you did it? And if, if how you can do it financially, let me put it that way, because uh, finances and uh, the economy of, of being sustainable seems to be the major obstacle for, for most people when it comes to reducing their carbon footprint. Yeah, it was a really good time to open a uh, 18,000 square meter warehouse. Um, fundamentally, um, we've been looking uh, around Europe uh, for a long time at the developments that um, a lot of our partner agents had made, uh, especially with regards to uh, ground source heat pumps and such like. And it was so difficult to actually implement that in the UK um, for a variety of different reasons. We didn't necessarily have the, the technology had to be brought in um, from abroad um, and also finding the right site in order to do it. Um, and it took a long time to actually put that in place and also the financing of that. But we felt that um, we felt that since, I would say the last 12, 15 years, uh, there's been a drive uh, from the UK museums, especially uh, towards sustainability. But, you know, it's always a bit, what is sustainability? And it was never really kind of defined. It was just, you know, it was just something that was, uh, we want to work towards this, but we don't really know what it means some of the time. So I think we were we were asked to try and, or we were kind of expected to try and find a way as a service industry as to how we could directly affect uh, people's uh, emissions, uh, direct emissions um, footprint. Um, and that's tricky because the majority of the time, most of our uh, emissions are going to be from procured air freight or sea freight. Uh, now. I don't want to get existential about it, but where does that um, footprint sit? Does it sit with the uh, airline? Does it sit with the uh, company that's procuring the air freight uh, on behalf of the museum? Which museum does it, where does, you know, it's, it's very uh, complicated. So as a result, what, where can we directly affect? So buildings, uh, crates, you could say vehicles, but realistically, the tech probably isn't there for vehicles, not for an art vehicle, as we, as we see as an art vehicle. So the building was the start. Um, so stealing ideas from our, uh, our partner agents across Europe, uh, they didn't mind, um, to be honest with you. Um, and opening that building was a key was a key driver. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're looking at 
75% reduction in emissions, which is uh, which is pretty good, pretty good start anyway. So, uh, Jason, I know that uh, you've worked a lot on the the carbon offset program that for Deedle, Um and you know carbon offsets are are a very sort of um, controversial topic because you know some people say that you know you're just buying carbon neutrality as opposed to doing the hard work to get it, but I think they can they still have a role to play. Can you tell us about your program and um, and how it yeah, works? Yeah, the, yeah, I yeah. think I think we started with carbon offsets because we knew that's a thing that we could do. We've moved on from carbon. We still do carbon offsets, but we the carbon offsets that we do, we do with Red Plus programs, and we use a nonprofit out of London where we pay the broker's fee, and then we don't do any markup on the offsets that we actually sell. So, and I think one of the reasons offsets are controversial is because there are a lot of shady projects for offsets. So you have to make sure that you're using third-party verified uh, offsetting. But more importantly, I think sustainability isn't just about finding like that one thing that you can do to try to offset what you're doing in, in your business practices. And recently, um, I've been in the pilot program of Key Culture, which is an amazing institution helping uh, our industry um, and also working with ArtSwitch as well, too. And part of that process is educating myself and Deedle about what sustainability really is, because I think we need resources in our industry to help us figure out where we are in this process. And I think one of those things is realizing that it's not just about environmental sustainability, it's social sustainability as well, too, and identifying and managing uh, our businesses impact both positively and neg negatively on people themselves and what demographics that affects. And if we're in an industry where a lot of our institutions are proponents of helping communities, then we have to understand what our negative impacts on those communities are too with our sustainability approaches. So I think it's a big picture thing. And when we draw it down into um, just carbon offsetting or just uh, finding out what the impact of being net neutral on our buildings are, it's a small part of a broader, a broader picture. Understood. I think, um, just FYI, we're coming up to the hour mark. So if, if everyone can uh, stay on board, we can continue the conversation understood if you need to run. Uh, but, uh, we're, uh, I find, I think we're finally hitting our stride here. Um, so likewise for you listeners, uh, please uh, stick around if you can. So, um, I think your point here is, is, is well taken that, um, there's a, a broader responsibility beyond just, uh, just the offsets. And, um, that leads right into the conversation about couriers, right? So, um, this is what, um, this seems to have become the, primary topic for the industry over the last uh, almost two years now. So, but to be honest, it's, it's, it, it predates the pandemic in a, in a massive way. I've done a, personally a lot of research for on behalf of ARCS as well, continuing others research before me when I was on the board. So this is not, not a new thing, but I think what's new is that the pandemic really kind of forced a lot of institutions to actually deal with uh, the high cost of uh, courier travel um, so I, I'm going to just throw this out there to everyone, but, uh, because I, uh, I don't know where to start because everyone's got a, an opinion about this, but, um, 
you know, many institutions are taking a um, no courier travel um, ostensibly because of the environmental impact of it, uh, of, of which it's massive, right? With uh, with uh, courier travel, but of course the cost plays into it. I remember seeing uh, over the ARCS conference last month, someone talked about you know six figure savings for a single exhibition by not uh, requiring couriers. So um, does anyone have uh, a specific um, uh, point that they would like to make about uh, sending the couriers? I know this is a little bit broad, but it's just been such a, a massive topic. Um, does it, can anyone uh, jump in? Bob, go ahead. So one of the issues that we've seen is museums not agreeing with each other on whether they want to send a courier or not. And it becomes a huge issue if, if the museum that's borrowing something is unwilling to send a courier for, for the lender, then us as vendors, we can sort of get caught in the middle. And I think that in the big picture, some of the bigger museums still want couriers. They're happier with them. Uh, I believe the insurance companies will say that they're happier with them. And some of the smaller museums who have adapted to the electronic couriers, so to speak, are very willing to do it. And so I, I think that now we're sort of stuck in the middle and that the museums have to figure out really what they want. And part of it is a cost issue. Part of it is a sustainability issue. Part of it is timing. Like we, like Antonio was talking before, we have to work further in advance. And an issue now is if you have travel restrictions and you have a courier that needs to go, well, all of a sudden, maybe the courier isn't going, but you still have to pay the ticket. So it's a huge issue. And, and I think that on the museum side, somehow the communication has to be better so that the museums can be on the same page and not fighting against each other. Right. Antonio, and then we'll go Monica and then Tina. Yeah, I don't think this is something we can really, probably I can give a personal idea, but this is, as agent, as Bob said, we are in the middle and this is a discussion that should go between museums and exhibition organizers. I think on our side, we try to be ready for both, you know, as a traditional courier, also with the new uh, electronic, with the new uh, virtual courier, et cetera. Uh, we have done that. What I can say that in terms of uh, office work, uh, when there are no couriers, it's for us is much, much less, especially in Italy. We do a lo lot of what normally the, the registers are doing in the, in the US museums. So we 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 have doing all the organizing organization of the travel uh, booking for the hotel, etc. So without that, we have much easier work in the, in the office. In the venue while installing, probably is not easier because uh, all the um, set of uh, video conferences, etc., can be problematic. And sometimes. We need to have also to help the organizers or the museum in Italy to have uh, staff to do that. And uh, and this is keeping more uh, more working hours from, from our side. Also, when we have to do it at the airport, uh, if there is no courier, we have to document, send pictures, et cetera. It's, you know, it's something, but for sure, 
the cost in terms of budget, it's less. This is what we can say. But then it's decision that the museum will have uh, to, to, to take, I think. Monica? Thank you, Jan. Yes, uh, in our case, uh, we have a different situation because uh, our national museums are regulated by the Ministry of Culture, and they are con they continuously require the presence of their couriers uh, when when in, when a Peruvian exhibition is traveling to a, to another country, uh, and this has given us. Uh, several additional costs for the organizers of the exhibitions to trying to uh, match uh, the restrict traveling restrictions in each country uh, with uh, with the travel of the trip the trip of the courier and uh, perhaps installation schedule at the museum. No, so uh, we had uh, we have. Uh, some months ago, one case that uh, an exhibition traveling to to UK to London, and then uh, the South Americans had to make uh, 14 days of quarantine. So the Ministry of Culture did not accept to have a virtual courier, and instead of this, uh, it was necessary to have two official couriers, one traveling before to make the quarantine in London, and the other one uh, working in Lima with us. Uh, with the packing and all the uh, and checking all the transport process, no. <laughs> so, so unfortunately, we cannot talk about uh, sustainability uh, in terms of couriers. No, it is all the all, all the opposite, really. Tina and then Meg. Yeah, I mean, I, I think apropos to what Monica said, I think the appetite for. Uh, people wanting to travel is a little bit lesser because of all of the things they have to do and all the hoops they have to go through. So we've been trying to find ways, you know, through the pandemic, like with the trackers to try to make things easier. And we also have like an online online portal that we're using now that's kind of a real time update um, with our ArtWise portal. portal. Um, but I, I think that, you know, as you said, John, there's so many museums now that really just don't want to send couriers. And I'm, I'm Curious, I'm curious if that's going to change. But um, one thing I wanted to get back to and ask some of the um, some of the the truckers, we've had a lot of interest from clients or the talking about electric vehicles. And, and is that something that you guys are planning to invest in? Um, I was kind of curious about that. Electric. Well, or actually, our parent might. Crozier's parent company is investigating that right now because we have so many vehicles on the road. Um, so it is something we're investigating. Everything touches a truck, right? <laughs> so uh, I man, think I, I do think everybody's okay. looking towards. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I think everybody's looking towards that. But until Amazon creates the fleet that is running around the country, we can't all get those trucks, right? So um, they're just not. It's not a, a real. Thing for us, right? No, no truck is. Uh, there's not enough battery or lithium ion to run something at this point that big. So, um, I don't think it's realistic quite yet. As an example, the port of uh, Long Beach isn't looking to switch out their trucks to uh, uh, zero emission vehicles until 2035. That's their timeline. That's not that far away, honestly. No, but it means they start saving now. So, and they're adding, I think it's a $20 surcharge per container to start building toward that 
to 2035. Wow. Meg? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to speak on the courier issue, just that, like, I know that for us, we've seen definitely delays in shipments and in our timelines, production timelines, based on the fact that um, museums and other clients um, haven't agreed on their courier policies, which often means that we're kind of set waiting for that decision to be made, which can compress our timelines. And that's been um, something that we've had to adjust to, which is new. And, you know, it would be nice if there was a little bit more consensus on the issue. Um. I understand that uh, there's a lot happening in the chat right now. Amanda, can you uh, update us with some of the comments and some of the questions? Surely. Um, so the career topic definitely brought in some discussion. And um, let's see. So some of the comments made were that traditional in-person career shipments are in a surprising way more prevalent now um, among the people who are listening and that there are still institutions like the National Galleries of Scotland that are working with bookend or virtual careers currently, but hoping to return in some fashion to um, study traditional careers in the spring for touring exhibitions. So it sounds like while there may have been some concessions, surely that there's, there is some consensus that returning to a traditional careership is preferred maybe among your museum clients. That's so interesting because we've, <laughs> because we were complaining that couriers were expensive before, and now in the pandemic world they're even more expensive. But everyone wants to to go back. That's that's a that's a super interesting point. Um, any any other uh, questions for the panel? Someone did ask a, a particular question about whether or not couriers are being allowed in cargo sheds in the European Union, and I don't know if any of our panelists could speak to that. Being as we're not in the European Union anymore, I can't comment. But in in the in the UK, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the UK, it's 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 really been a, a case by case basis, and depending on how the pandemic's shifted, and airline to airline, um, at the height of the pandemic, no, you couldn't go near an airline warehouse. Um, they weren't letting anyone in. Um, now it's more the case of uh, yes, you can get most. Uh, in most airlines, you can get courier passes and you can certainly get the airline representatives in. Um, whether something changes again with the new variant, uh, we're not too sure. But again, it's it's it really is airline to airline. Yeah, we never had problems in Italy to allow couriers to go in the cargo area. Uh, sometimes only if we had uh, more than one courier at the same time, that was, you know, they asked us just to reduce to one. Uh, when you have exhibitions, sometimes you can have three, two or three together, and this is not easy at the moment. But one per shipment is normally allowed, both in Malpensa and Rome airports. Carlos, uh, in in Mexico, I've uh, I've sat outside of uh, car, uh, cargo sheds trying to to get in with uh, with shipments with uh, Cordova Plaza. Is that uh, the same there? What's what's uh, is there well, still we have to access? Yeah, this is another issue because since September 11, uh, we cannot go into the uh, tarmac, for example. But, but we can stay. Yeah, you can take couriers to the cargo area for each airline. That's no problem at all. 
We need, of course, an special permit and everything. We, so we are right now at the same uh, uh, with the same rules as two years ago. There's no problem at all. Only the termic. Hmm. I, um, I had a question about Europe too, because we've been told recently. I think it, I think it's mostly out of Lux that in order to supervise, you, they're they're charging sole use containers. Um, is anyone experiencing that too? Because we've we've heard that. Yeah, no, that, it was sorry. It was something they were planning to do, um, and then we 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 called uh, we called Cargolux in recently, and they they've they've reneged on that now. Uh, it was a it was a, a misunderstanding apparently. You can well whichever way you want to sit. Yeah, it was a misunderstanding. Yeah, right. I, I think sometimes it's more a problem of when you deliver the shipment to the airport because. It, uh, if there is a courier, normally you try to do it in the last minute, and then normally the airline can say, sorry, if you come the last minute, it's okay, but then we cannot build a full container with other, uh, with other goods, so you have to use once, only one. Uh, if you agree to deliver a bit earlier so that can, they can put together other goods, then it's easier. It's not the, the presence of the courier itself, but more when the time that you give to the airlines to, to, to prepare the pallets. There is a, uh, a famous saying, I don't know who said it, but um, never let an opportunity go to waste. And um, I, I think that we've seen some museums take this moment as an opportunity to reduce the cost and, and reduce the carbon footprint via with without sending couriers. But I want to know um, what other opportunities have arisen, whether it's for shipping or for um, for the industry as a whole. Uh, Anna, do you have a comment before we address that question? Mm, yes, uh, it's about security uh, procedures at, at the airport, which I think um, it, uh, it has really changed or way to work because it is more and more introduced this, this need to X-ray the the crates and um, to become a known known like known shipper known um, museum, you know, before the the authorities, in order to to get all this this um, certificate uh, to allow. Uh, to deliver the crates uh, with not so long time uh, at the airport. I mean, all these little little steps, but the long, long uh, list of um, demands. This uh, is what, uh, what uh, for my point of view, and, and the, the existence or not of the of the courier there standing up and, and looking at, at, at everything that of course it's a it's a more more work for us to to prepare but again uh, I think security um, is more is more an issue um <clears throat> so uh, I do want to get to this idea of the opportunity uh, at the at the moment. I want to ask Shige because uh, specifically because in the middle of all of this, 
you threw in the Olympics. And so you were involved in not only your normal uh, work, but also the, the extreme sort of uh, work of, of shipping uh, things for the Olympics. So is there, is there something that, uh, that uh, you're going to benefit from as a result of all of this experience during the pandemic? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We had Olympics. Uh, it's, it, it, uh, it finished uh, September, uh, but uh, uh, it's like history now. Yeah. It's all the way, yeah. but actually, um, uh, logistics of Olympics still continues and, uh, uh when we have to send back, uh, all the, uh, shipments until, and it ends maybe until March, next March 22. And, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, we had many, many visitors, even there is no audiences, uh, I think about 100,000 totally athletes uh, coming from abroad. And uh, yes, uh, act actually, I think uh, uh, it, it was on the news, but uh, many had infected and uh, got got active person, but uh, um, unfortunately not a big, big mess. So, uh, uh, but you know, um, uh, have you had to uh, change any operational procedures, uh, in a way to do all of this work that will benefit you uh, in the future and that you think you'll continue to, to use, uh, in the future? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, actually we were, uh, uh, one of the no nominated agent for the Olympic uh, logistics. So we, uh, many of uh, my colleagues uh, uh, have to help uh, uh, for this big event. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. I could also say, uh, you know, with respect to say, uh, say Tina and Jason, you guys have, uh, use trackers and everyone else has started using trackers as well. Uh, this I think is another positive outgrowth because, um, it doesn't mean you can travel without a courier or without any sort of supervision, but it's a lot more information that we, um, didn't have before. That's going to help us, uh, maintain, uh, our, our crates. And, uh, I think that's a really positive, uh, outcome of this. Anna, do you have a comment? Well, we we adapted uh, to to the needs, the different technological um, needs we we started to to use, and um, and now it's actually <laughs> a very wide range of different technologies, and uh, because everyone wants a system, or the other one is used to. You know the type or the uh, cargo signal or the other. Um, some devices are are accepted by certain uh, companies and others are not. So we always try to to keep it as as more simple as possible. But there is no one sole uh, device for every case. So I. 
I think the the key is just to 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 adapt and and to do like a recipe, you know. Right. At the end. Yeah, Jason and then Tina. Yeah, I think the I think this idea that what what did we gain out of this or what did we learn and we can adapt is maybe. I think everybody on this call can probably agree that their company shrunk during COVID. We had to lay people off and furlough people just like every other, every other institution that we work with in our industry, right? So you learn to appreciate your staff and what they can do for you. And as we are growing that staff back and trying to figure out where, where we were just talking about the truckers not being able to be hired because they're not being paid enough or they're overworking too much. It's like, where do you work with your staff that you're not overworking them and that you're appreciating everything they can do? I think it's made us reassess really the value uh, of everybody that's in our team. We thought we already did before, but this is really like COVID has really put it to the test. It's been a, a real uh, come to Jesus moment, I guess, for, for everybody. Um, I wanted to say one other thing too, and, and this is just in terms of supply chain. Like I saw a quote today that was, that can basically be brought down to what is going on with the supply chain. Um, China has basically said they're going to keep a zero COVID approach and keep international flights at 2.2% of pre-COVID levels during winter. That's only 2.2% of the flights available. 50% of all air freight that moves is on passenger flights pre-COVID. So if that doesn't tell you why your air freight rates are up or what the availability is on your, your air freight, that's it right there. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> Tina? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that I think this time has given both, you know, all of us shippers and all of our clients a little time to reflect and, and catch up. You know, I think we've been on this you know, for the past 20 some years that I've been at Masterpiece. It's just been a sprint. Right. And and so it's like we had a little time to sit back and say, well, how can we improve what we're doing? How can we make it make more sense? footprint, whether they want to pay something or they want to use that data to, you know, maybe improve their practices. I think, you know, all of our accounting, I'm sure, is so much cleaner than it used to be. I mean, I think every, every, probably every week prior to COVID, I get this list of, of things we haven't billed or haven't paid just because there's so much volume. And we now have like improved our practices. So our billing is cleaner and everything's getting, you know, out quicker. And, you know, as, as Jason said, we, we, we've all last lost staff and, and now maybe it's, you know, the build back better, you know, we can all find ways to keep this momentum and keep everything clean and on top of things and continue to find ways to improve. And I think that that the last two years, I think everybody's found that. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of the, the, the best thing that's happened is that, that we have, we have listened to what clients are saying and we're finding ways to, to help serve them. Yeah. Anna? Anna, did you have a point to make? Oh, okay. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, George too, because you uh, you were in, in an interesting position where you were growing uh, the Los Angeles Gander and White 
uh, and then you were sort of on this upward trajectory and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and you're, you know, you've had your knees clipped. How has it uh, been trying to adapt? And especially with all the the, the supply chain issues, uh, LA being a major port, uh, of course, the the sea seaport, but then also the airport. So um, this is another uh, <laughs> challenge that you've been faced with. Well, honestly, to follow with what Tina said, I mean, we were, you know, it certainly sharpened my chops, if anything, because I was in a dogfight for survival out here in 2020, and I had to make a lot of adjustments on the fly. And bear in mind, this is back in the, in the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't know what every day would bring. So we had to readjust our focus and our strategy every day. And just it, 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 it was it was it was pretty daunting and, and certainly very, very trying. But it like with Tina, it made us better. It made us sharper. It made us understand that we could survive this. So what we did is, and, and we, I had to make some difficult decisions as the manager out here. I, I did have to furlough staff and I had to bring them back incrementally and slowly according to need, not according to, you know, longevity or, or length of employment or pay rate or, or whether I liked them or not. It was, was basically, it was, it, I was responding to the needs, immediate needs of the business, right? And we survived, you know, I, I think our sales were down significantly in 2020. I think that was true of everybody, but we emerged. You know, we survived. We, you know, didn't get crushed. Uh, I was able to bring my, I, there were a few, uh, you know, layoffs, but I was able to bring everybody else back. And I also, you know, was able to, 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 like, to, to build back better. Like Tina's, we remade our office. There were a lot of, because other companies were furloughing talent, there was a lot of Italian talent available for me to, to rebuild my team. Um, and the business came back, thankfully. And we just, we, we survived and kept ourselves in a position to capitalize on that. And yeah, it, it, it was definitely a learning experience, but it did teach us a lot. You know, we've yeah. got to make constant adjustments and we were able to do it as a group to bear in mind, you know, Gannon White is a, is a, is a international group. And uh, some of our branches actually truly benefited from some of the social changes caused by the pandemic, whereby others didn't. But as a group, we definitely worked together and we survived. I think it's so encouraging to hear that uh, the opportunity to connect with uh, with your colleagues, uh, both your employees, your clients, and even just other people in the industry has been um, really uh a great moment. I mean, I've, I've felt it here, even, uh, with arcs chat as we've done these, um, these, uh, these chats. Um, I don't want to keep us too much longer, but the, the last thing I do want to ask is, um, what's the future? Are we looking at more laws, regulations, um, any sort of, um, permanent change, that is resulting from this? Um, what, what, what are we to anticipate, uh, is coming, uh, for the future of, of the industry and of shipping. We, we know that air freight's going to go up and down, but, uh, what is going to stabilize it besides, of course, you know, um, the pandemic becoming say endemic, but, uh, wh what's the future hold for us? Does anyone want to speculate or do I have to call on Ben? Don't make me call on Ben. <laughs> If I can add I was some, expecting. 
Yes, I, I may say that uh, what Antonio said is uh, really a conclusion. Um, we need to plan very much in advance, mm. but not, not only longer, I mean with more time in advance, but also the quality of the information we are working with to, to do their um, the museum's uh, estimates on, the, on these projects to calculate. I mean, we need to, to, to improve in, in that. We need to receive better information. Otherwise, there is no way to, to arrive to a, to a real estimate and, and then try to keep these, these figures um, in, a, in a short or medium term. And this is what, what our clients need. So, I mean, uh, to insist in, in the quality of the information, because otherwise it's, it's, a, it's a mess. It's, it's very, very uh, difficult, even if we are very experienced or we are giving uh, good prices, but uh, margins are no longer uh, existing most of the times. So we, we need to, to work very close with the museum um, in, in, that, uh, in that sense. Time and quality. Hmm. If this is uh, something I can add, especially uh, dedicated to the future and the sustainability, I think uh, planning, as we already said, uh, it's very important and a bit more of flexibility in, in dates. Um, but this is again something that all, 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 all the people working to this in this uh, fine art business for an exhibition, they have to, to understand. Probably, I'm not saying something that some maybe some museum will like, but uh, you know the, the flexibility on the dates is very important to combine transport. But transport, even to the same exhibition, you don't know how many times we have. For example, flights that arrive from the United States arrive in Italy at uh, seven o'clock in the morning. Others arrive at eleven or twelve, and uh, normally. If there's a shipment is going with a final destination, for example, to Florence, then we have to send one truck for the first flight arriving at seven, another one for arriving at 11, and maybe another one if arriving at three, uh, at 1 p.m. Because uh, if there was a courier that didn't want to wait at the airport, if there is a shipment, they don't want to leave it uh, at the airport. And this is three trucks going from Florence to, uh, from Milan to Florence, and also the, on the way back. Uh, this is much more important for sustainability uh, more than the couriers themselves, because I mean there is a lot, lot of waste of uh, truck transport, uh, which you know can be good for us or for the transport agent, but this is not what we want. Uh, we want to optimize at the best and help with the budget. But again, I think there, there should be a bit of a flexibility and understand sometimes why. Uh, if there is a suggestion, you know, to wait a couple of hours, etc. Still, our final tracks still going to the same venue, so it's not really putting together uh, different shipments or different uh, um, destinations. So it's a, a finite shipment. But I think a bit of more uh, understanding uh, of the problems will help 
uh, all the museums to get better budget and better organize the, the transport and, uh, and the shipments. So yeah. planning and flexibility, I think, are the two words that we need for, for the future. Right. I also think that um, people have to understand that there are fewer, there are going to be fewer options available down the road for whatever reason, maybe because there are fewer flights or maybe because there are fewer drivers, but when you used to have five, there are only going to be three. And I, what to what Anna said before is, not only do we have to have better information to do the job, but we need better information to do the estimate. If, if, if we're getting information that is inaccurate, we can all guess at it a little bit, but it's going to create issues that our estimates are going to be inaccurate and we're going to be unable to keep them to, to the, where we were. Yeah. Chuck? Yeah, as to say, there are issues um, that might be minor on like supply chain issues. There might be minor on daily pickups that the clients don't see those cost fluctuations as much as they do on large projects. I mean, the large projects aren't going anywhere. They, they, a lot of the, the funds for those were escrowed before COVID and they've just been sitting and waiting. So now there's a flow and, um, you know, and any of those projects are actually, it's a good time to do it. Um, for, it, it allows them to bring staff in and into work. But as uh, Bob was saying, flexibility in terms of budget is essential um, and contingencies are essential. Just I've had two projects in the middle of it where material prices have more than tripled quadruple and you know we we just can't absorb that and most of us in our our riders state that we don't absorb that you know it's it's based on market but no one really reads that <laughs> and then when you come back with it, it there's like a huge surprise so communication probably more than flexibility i found important over the last year having that information up front and out there regularly if I had any of these ongoing projects, I met with the clients weekly to update them on, on um, sourcing material flow, transportation flow, delays, staffing issues. We have constant COVID conferences, and that hasn't changed. We still do that. I meet with all the primary clients once or twice a week. And that communication has allowed us to uh, circumvent a number of possible left turns that any of these projects could have taken. Right. So essentially everyone needs to manage their expectations and uh, remain flexible for the foreseeable future. Um, all right. Well, I, this is essentially where we left off at the end of the, uh, the last discussion in April of 2020, which is, <laughs> we don't know what's happening. Um, you know, we, we can, uh, we can, uh, we just have to, the, the big difference of course, is that we're all working essentially full time again, uh, if we want to be. And, um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit of friction, uh, between having to remain flexible, having fewer options, those options do cost more and, uh, all of us still having to meet our deadlines and make exhibitions, uh, happen and make shipping happen. So it's an interesting, uh, point that we're at. So, um, any, uh, final comments, uh, that, uh, anyone wants to, uh, get in before we, uh, close up shop here? Okay, I uh, won't put anyone else on the spot anymore. I just want to thank the panel for joining us. Um, you know, especially you know people that are far away. Shige, you're up in the middle of the night to join us. We really appreciate it. Um, everyone else, um, thank you so much for coming back. 
and, and participating. Thanks to everyone who is participating in the chat and joined us today. Uh, it's, it's very important to us because obviously we're all in this together. So, um, as usual, we'll turn this into a podcast and release it on uh, this coming Friday after the fact. So uh, if you weren't able to see it live, catch it on your next commute. Uh, thanks. Uh, you can find the the, the podcast uh, on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google Podcasts, the, the normal spots. Um, and um, thanks to Robin for all of her technical expertise and Amanda for manning the chat. We'll be back in uh, January with what hopes to be a problematic and um, otherwise uh, controversial topic. So um, we'll, we'll tell you more about that later. So uh, thanks everyone. And um, uh, we'll see you the next time. See you in a month. Take care. <laughs>